Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The occupancy level of commercial spaces in these city centres are stark and reviving them is the biggest challenge Australian cities will face in 2023. We look into our crystal ball to predict some of the challenges that lay ahead for cities in 2023. While we certainly hope that this year will be less testing than the past few, it's important to prepare ourselves for whatever lies ahead. So how will the subway, for example, in New York regain ridership and the metro in Milan move more people away from cars? And how will Delhi and Buenos Aires clear the air in their respective urban centres? Plus, will it be back to business down under? All that and much, much more ahead in the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The past few years have been tough on our cities with unprecedented and unpredictable events leaving an indelible mark on the urban fabric. So as we look to the year ahead, it's important to identify some of the difficulties in order to best position ourselves to combat them. To start today, we head to New York. The subway is often top of mind when thinking about both the successes and challenges of New York City. While reigniting ridership has been a challenge all city metro systems have had to face, New York's recent mayoral race highlighted another growing concern for riders, personal safety while riding by rail. Monocle's man in the city, Henry Reese Sheridan, sent us this report. One of New York's biggest concerns is the city's subway system, by far the largest in the US. Weekday ridership levels hover between 60 and 70% of pre-pandemic levels. There are a number of reasons people aren't returning to the subway, not least that many are still working from home. But one of the most common reasons people give is a concern over safety while they're down in the subway system. The city's mayor, Eric Adams came into office in January of last year, promising to make public safety a priority. And over the course of his first year in office, he's gradually ramped up his efforts to make the subway feel safe to the majority of riders. As a former transit police officer, I know what that system looks like, filled with graffiti and uncertainty and afraid to use the system that you deserve to have. Today we are saying we're not going backwards, we're moving forward, and we are rolling out the next phase of our operation, which is our subway safety plan. Adams introduced more police officers into the system. He installed more surveillance cameras and hired private security guards to monitor turnstiles. Then in November, he took his most drastic step yet. He empowered police officers to involuntarily remove people from subways and take them to a hospital if they're believed to be unable to meet their own basic needs. As you might expect, these increasingly heavy-handed measures have been polarising. But even those who welcome them might be put off by anticipated fare increases needed to plug the hole in the subway budget that was left by the pandemic. And that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to New York's financial woes. A combined budget gap of $13.4 billion has been projected for the next three fiscal years. The city has tightened spending to combat this, 
but that money comes out of the budgets for public infrastructure like transit and public housing. The other way Adams can reduce the gap is by increasing taxes. But he's reluctant to do that for fear of driving away even more of the city's wealthiest taxpayers. There was a 7.7% shortfall in tax revenue from personal income and related taxes last year. This is a lingering effect of a chunk of the city's wealthiest residents moving away during the pandemic. Adams doesn't seem to think the city can afford to lose any more, and he'll be hoping that they trickled back. A report published in November by the consulting firm McKinsey suggests that the number of high-skilled jobs in the city are set to increase. But the same report says automation will eliminate 350,000 jobs in sectors like office support and restaurants that require less training. This trend points towards a more divided city, one that will have to negotiate a new social contract to try to make the best of a fraught situation. Henry Reese Sheridan there, reporting from New York. We stay in the Americas now as we head south to the two capitals on the River Plate. Buenos Aires and Montevideo may be close in proximity, but the cities look to have very different challenges in the year ahead. Monocle's Lucinda Elliott tells us what each centre could be wise to look out for in the near future. The River Plate divides two important South American cities. On one side of the riverbank sits Argentina's capital, Buenos Aires, with a population that's well into 15 million. On the other is Montevideo, home to fewer than 2 million residents, which makes it the smallest capital on the continent. Their differing size might suggest they face entirely contrasting challenges this coming year. But look a little closer, and there's more in common than the stretch of water that separates them. For Buenos Aires, the hordes of rubbish being thrown away is perhaps the most immediate task. Potent gases from a vast landfill site on the city's outskirts are generating serious air pollution problems. More importantly, methane, that's hurting efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and the environmental reputation that the city council has worked hard to establish. Buenos Aires hosted the C40 Mayor's Meeting in 2022, with the environment at the forefront of discussions and future plans. Satellite images late last year showed some 38 metric tonnes of methane was at times leaking every hour from the electric-powered Norte Tres dump. It was so large that even the Netherlands Space Institute picked up on the clouds over the city. And this was despite efforts the site has made to curb emissions. The central issue, the plant explained, has been the amount people are throwing away, particularly during the pandemic when they stayed home for longer. One solution is to increase capacity. The other is to encourage residents to separate organic waste from general so the plant can compost it, something that's proven to reduce gases over time. Pollution from mountains of rubbish that millions of homes are throwing away inevitably will cross over to Uruguay that faces its own struggles as its population swells. The number of people moving to Montevideo has increased notably over the past decade, with more than a third of the entire population of Uruguay currently residing in the city. A new national census, scheduled for this year, could reveal the real figure is much higher, 
driven by the services offered and job opportunities. But it's not only Uruguayans from the interior moving to the capital. Arrivals from Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, and even from neighboring Argentina that's experiencing a serious economic downturn are on the up. In the case of Venezuelans, by as much as 30% in 2022 compared to a year prior, and driving demand for everything from housing to schooling in a city that at one point struggled to make younger generations stay. A housing deficit of an estimated 87,000 homes by 2025 is a key challenge. To tackle it, Montevideo has introduced two schemes. One, a state fund to improve small holdings and more precarious housing on the city's outskirts, titled Mejorar tu Vivienda, connecting them to the main grid, paving pathways and tiling roofs. The other is to build new homes using government resources, transferring as much as 1% of GDP to property development, something that successive governments have never had to face. As one Uruguayan recently described the city to me, we're like an island in Latin America. Is it any wonder why more people want the island life at a moment of such global instability? For Monocle in Montevideo, I'm Lucinda Ellett. Much like Buenos Aires, officials in India's capital of New Delhi could do well to look out for what's in the air this year if they hope to protect the health of their citizens. A solution may be on the table, however, but will further investment into the so-called smog towers bring the results that Delhiites really need? Gitanjali Krishna reports. It's a chilly, foggy January morning in Delhi, and I'm in Connaught Place, the commercial centre of the city. Around me, the sun is shrouded by smog, and the city's air has over eight times the limit of pollutants that the WHO considers acceptable. Every day, media headlines scream that I live in the world's most polluted capital, where even breathing is injurious to health. But what's one to do other than hope that the government takes more measures to clean our air in 2023? Ahead in the mist, I see it. A tall tower rivaling the Qutub Minar, Delhi's historic victory tower built in the 12th century. This one is 24 meters tall, it's luridly painted and it's emitting freezing gusts of wind. This is one of the two smog towers constructed soon after the Supreme Court pulled up the government for not doing enough to improve the capital's air in 2019. The court said, Delhi is choking every year and we are not able to do anything. People are dying and this can't happen in a civilized country. In response, the Delhi government constructed the smog tower in 2021. It has 40 fans and 5,000 filters that are engineered to suck polluted air from above and release clean air from below. When it was inaugurated, we, the citizens of Delhi, were assured that this was the path-breaking solution to our breathing woes that we had all been waiting for. And that if this worked, the government would install a network of smog towers across the city. Their optimism was based in part on the fact that similar air purifier towers have long been used in Beijing and other polluted cities in China. Unfortunately, China isn't known for being upfront about the outcomes of expensive technologies. In Delhi, on the other hand, the smug smogbuster and its predecessor, the one built by an MP in an adjoining market, 
have attracted plenty of debate. Although the censors on the towers proudly proclaim that they are doing their job, Delhi's air remains unbreathable and the locals completely confused about these towers. I talked to Abdul, an itinerant peanut vendor standing under the tower. It must be working, he says, but air is invisible, so how can we tell? Tuk-tuk drivers parked nearby complained that the smog towers fans make Delhi's chilly, clammy winter that much harder to bear. Abdul says that for people like him who survive on their daily earnings, it doesn't really matter whether the tower is doing its job or not. They have to work regardless of the air quality. Many scientists say that such smog towers are as effective in cleaning pollutants from the atmosphere as air conditioners installed outdoors would be in making the Indian summer more bearable. They say that instead of wasting public funds on such gizmos, the government should take aggressive action to reduce emissions from the main culprits. Diesel vehicles, construction dust, crop burning and coal-fired thermal power plants. Abdul goes off to try his luck at the nearby bus stop as the tower continues to hum, pointlessly sending out clean air while the city ceaselessly churns out pollutant after pollutant. Meanwhile, the debate on air pollution continues to rage with politicians seemingly more intent on passing the buck than in finding genuine solutions. And in all this toxic haze, the actual cause for concern, Delhi's right to breathe clean air, has become just a little harder to see. Geetanjali Krishna reporting there from Delhi. Next, back to business in Australia. The country was slow to release its grip on the lockdowns it imposed during the global pandemic. This has meant that while some centres are back to business as usual, those down under are still taking their time to return to the office. As Monocle's Nick Manise explains, to change Australian cities for the better, city and business leaders may need to start small. It's no secret that Australia's pandemic mandates and regulations were some of the most intense in the world. Melbourne took the unenviable title of being the globe's most lockdown city in 2021 and the state of Western Australia closed its borders to everyone, even residents outside of it, until 2022. The moves wrecked havoc on business, people's well-being and, it seems, its cities. At the end of last year, activity across the country's two biggest metropolitan centres, Sydney and Melbourne, were still well below pre-pandemic levels. At present, visits to offices and places of work in the centre of Melbourne are 20% lower than in 2019. In Sydney, it sits between 30 and 40%. As a result, the occupancy level of commercial spaces in these city centres are stark, and reviving them is the biggest challenge Australian cities will face in 2023. Melbourne's central business district is only at 55% capacity, while Sydney is at 42%. The working culture in these cities barely have a pulse. And while the picture is bleak, it's certainly not dire. There's been an uptick in recreational visits to both city centres across weekends, with shopping and cultural trips in Sydney CBD near 2019 levels. And on sunny weekends, parks and plazas that have views to Sydney's famous harbour are now experiencing more than double their visitor numbers than before the pandemic. So what can we learn from this fact that might help revive weekday office-related activity? 
like the parks and plazas that have harbour views, office space in the city needs to be a destination, giving people the motivation to leave home offices and make a commute. More affordable public transport does help, but the quality of a workspace in 2023 needs to be better than ever before, and that starts with good design. Views to nature, whether that's a harbour, park or sunny skies, should be prioritised. Natural daylight is, of course, essential, helping employees and employers reset and reinvigorate themselves throughout the day. A balance also needs to be struck between public and private spaces. People need conference rooms, meeting rooms and canteens where they can connect, do collaborative work and share a meal too. But they also need quiet spaces to focus, to hide away from the hubbub of the workplace. All of this, of course, needs to take place in the context of interiors furnished with comfortable and beautiful chairs and desks and surfaces that use robust and natural materials. With this in mind, it seems that to improve the likes of Melbourne and Sydney on a macro level, we need to zoom in on the micro level of the office and its design. An appealing and beautiful place to work could be the key to people returning to the Australian city centre in 2023. Monocle's Nick Manise there. Coming back to transport now, we take a trip to Milan. The city has been working hard to improve its urban standing in Europe over the past few years, with major projects towards better cycleways and big improvements to the metro system at the top of the agenda in Italy's business capital. So what still has to be done? And what are we hoping to see more of in 2023? Our man in Milan, Ed Stocker, tells us more. The brand new Dateo metro station opened at the end of November last year as part of Milan's newest public transport project, the driverless M4 metro line. It's been a big deal for the city and for years the works have been visible throughout the Lombard capital, as roads have been dug up, tunnels built and lift shafts installed. And it's not over yet. Dateo in eastern Milan is for now the end of the line, one of the five stops that form the first phase of work leading out to Lenate Airport. When the second phase is complete in June, you'll be able to travel from the city centre to Milan's secondary airport in only 14 minutes. By 2024, the line will be finished, linking the east and the west parts of the city by metro for the first time. The new train line needs to be seen in the context of Milan's ambitions and the challenges it needs to overcome in order to meet them. Put simply, Milan wants to be one of Europe's great cities. For years, that wasn't the case, viewed as a grey and polluted powerhouse of the Italian economy, but not a place you actually wanted to live. That has been changing over the last decade and Mayor Beppe Sala is keen to keep pushing in that direction. The new metro line makes Milan, already in possession of an extensive electric bus and tram network, more connected. It is also being touted, as you'd expect, as a way to reduce car journeys as people switch to public transport. That's of course good news for CO2 emissions and a step in the right direction for tackling Milan's bad air quality amongst the worst in Western Europe. But although Italian media have marvelled at the glistening new train stations and the fleet of 40 automated trains, 
Milan has also been taking the opportunity that has been presented overground, because when you dig up the ground, you have the chance to do just that. Milan badly needs better civic infrastructure, from green spaces to bike lanes, and rethinking the corridors above the tracks could do just that. The results from the first phase are auspicious. The central reservation dividing each side of the road above the stations that have already opened has been completely requalified. Along Viale Argone and finishing at Piazzale Souza, new infrastructure has been added. There are sports facilities with basketball hoops and a football pitch, a children's playground, outdoor ping pong tables and newly planted trees. And perhaps most important of all is the terracotta-coloured cycle path heading in both directions that is completely separate from road traffic. While it won't be possible to replicate for the entire length of the new line, especially where it heads through the more compact centre, there are more interventions planned. There are of course challenges ahead. Milan may be increasing its bike pass, but there is still a lot of work to be done to make it better integrated. As for all the new facilities, City Hall will need to make sure that they are well maintained and don't become daubed in graffiti like much of the public areas in the rest of the city. While car-loving Italians aren't about to abandon their vehicles overnight, and Milan isn't quite Paris yet, it is taking big strides. That bid for greatness is on the horizon. For Monocle in Milan, I'm Ed Stocker. Sitting from the presenter's chair here at The Urbanist, it's interesting to see and hear all those reports because there's such a kind of interplay of ideas that everybody is dealing with. But what the heart of it seems to be is that still even though many cities are now feeling that the pandemic is a thing of the past, it's still shaping how their cities function, run and trip up quite a lot too. In recent weeks and months, many of our reporters have been to North American cities where the occupancy rates in downtown towers is something like 20%, hardly enough to sustain a coffee shop, let alone an infrastructure of stores and restaurants in downtown areas. What happens to these CBDs is a real concern because they're at the heart of many cities and at the heart of what many cities think they stand for. So even the the soul of many cities is being challenged at this time. And we don't see a race back to the office. And it's not just the office, it's a race back to living the kinds of lives that came pre-pandemic. When our team have been to Tokyo, for example... They've been surprised at how sleepy the city remains even today. Now it's reopened at 10 o'clock. Many bars now decide to shutter and go home. The world has changed a little bit. So what next? It's important that all of these cities re-engage with their citizens and their communities to find how they can bring joy and excitement back to their streets. And this doesn't just mean pop-up festivals and pop-up restaurants, it's about much, much more than that. But when we look ahead to the future, the other big challenge, of course, is environment. And it's great to see how many cities are playing a key part in facing up to the challenges of climate change and wanting to be the leaders in their nations for how a place can pivot, 
can become a more walkable, more cyclable city. And in so doing, embrace a slightly brighter future for us all. So it's a time of big questions, some tricky answers as well for people to get their heads around. But what's clear is, over the next 12 months, Monocle's Urbanist Programme will be here every week to look at those issues and unpack them for you and hopefully present some exciting solutions. But that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes direct to you every single week. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Monocle Magazine too for regular print reports on all things urbanism. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rebello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Beach Fossils with This Year. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Mm-hmm.